0: The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello, I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy at Investmark.
0: And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review.
1: And uh, we are The Money Cafe. James, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been quite an incredible period of time. I think we need to really address you know, the big thing that's been going on over the last 10 days, which is central banks. Take me through what you saw with the Fed decision. We're doing this on the 15th of June. So for us here in Australia, it happened this morning are your key takeouts from what you saw from from Jay Powell and Co. Oh,
0: I'm still trying to get my head around it, Evan. Um, obviously, the the sort of headline bit of news is that they uh, the the Federal Reserve kept rates on hold, um, but then they released a set of economic projections which suggested that they still felt feel there's room for two more rate hikes, and um, Jay Powell went out of his way at his press conference to sound very hawkish, you know, um, the, the job's not done, inflation's barely budged, um, we need to keep going, no rate cuts for a couple of years was his quote. So what, what do you make of all that? Uh, I, I reckon that you, you've got to think a bit like uh, Howard Marks who always says it's, it's silly to try and predict the next rate cut or next rate hike because you'll get it wrong and you won't get the market reaction right either. So think about the direction of travel I think we're seeing from central banks right around the world, Australia, Canada, and now the Fed, inflation is sticky, rates are going to be higher for longer, and that has lots of ramifications. It means corporates are going to be paying higher higher, um, debt costs, which will flow through to earnings. Economies are going to be a bit softer. Consumption's going to be a bit softer. And so I think you've just got to realise we're not going straight back to that ultra-low rates world that we saw really between, you know, 2009 and 2021.
1: I'd agree with that. I, I mean, I, I when I saw it this morning, I, I almost could just hear Jamie Bullard. And for those of you who don't know who Jamie Bullard, he's one of the main members on the Fed who is not just a hawk. He is the absolute epitome, peak, pinnacle, premier hawk out there. <laughs> he, he, is, he, is, you know, he must have been just pulling his hair out with what happened this morning. I mean, they forecasted this. Let's also put that out there. They have been yes. telling... The market for weeks that this was likely to be the scenario that they are you know more giving themselves room to slow down i mean by the end of the year you're right to point out the dot plots which is again what they release with regards to what each member on the board thinks is going to be where us where the federal reserve cash rate is going to be or what we call the federal funds rate Will be by the end of the year, and it's higher than where it currently is. They, they most of them have it between five and a half and five point seven five percent. So clearly, that already tells you that as well. And I agree. We're well, looking at the the projections. It's it's hard to argue. You know, again, they've been saying this for so long. Go hard, go early. We want to really yeah. sort of and and this wasn't that. So again, you know, you could make arguments that someone like Esther George, she was really hawkish, but had slightly turned of late. Maybe she was one of the ones to balk with it with sort of the main core in terms of what's been going on there. So the Fed is is interesting um, and, again, you, you have to have a good understanding because they are the lead for all monetary markets across the entire planet. So you need to keep an eye on it. I agree with you, though. I don't think they're, they're far from done. And, and, again, listening and watching what the dot plot says and what the communication is is that the probability of the US, you know, federal funds rate being in a three handle in the next 18 months I think is – very very low uh considering that as you just said not only is inflation sticky their economy is doing better than i think they expected and they told you that in the in the forecast this morning so off the fed moving across to the next one and we'll look across the ditch here and and what's going on over in new zealand because as we wake up this morning here as well new zealand now has entered a technical recession having contracted by 0.1 of one percent in the second quarter sorry in the first quarter Adrian Orr has been described as shock and awe for his (laughs) movements to seeing the New Zealand cash rate to 5.5%. How do you look at this, James? Like, What what do you take out from this? Because that was always the threat of him going this hard that this would happen.
0: Yeah. Uh, I spoke to an analyst, a banking analyst this morning, and obviously Australia's big four banks are New Zealand's big four banks. ANZ has a 30% Thirty percent market share over in New Zealand, a- and he described New Zealand as a bit of a crash test dummy um, b- because they've been raising rates so hard; they were always the economy was always going to hit the wall, and now we sort of see how that shakes out. But the interesting thing in New Zealand is is where Australia has mainly variable mortgage rates, and so when we uh, when the RBA raises rates, that tr- that is transmitted to the uh, average australian pretty quickly the, the kiwis uh 90 of their market is two year fixed rates just by dent of history so they've got this th- weird circumstance where they have a bunch of people who bought houses at extremely high prices extremely high debt to income ratios in 2021 particularly who are moving from a 2.5% fixed rate mortgage to a 7% variable rate mortgage, and on the uh, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand's own figures, something like six uh, something like 32% of them are spending 60% of their income just to service their mortgage. That is a huge uh, handbrake on economic growth, and it, it, it's it's. Probably the only surprise is this, that, that New Zealand hasn't quite got to this technical recession sooner. But the, the saving grace for them, Evan, is that there's no sign of yet of a, of a pickup in unemployment. So that the, the pressure on people to sell their houses, which would really be a big worry for Australia's banks and, and their Kiwi operations, that isn't coming through yet.
1: But give it time. I mean, as you alluded to there, yeah. that, that, that rollover, that two-year period is technically starting because I remember that seeing that data too. The the big peak in Auckland was was in September twenty or twenty-one. So the the roll-off is six to eight weeks away, you know, with a peak coming in, in 90 days. Um and, and not only that, as you alluded to there, the, the catch for New Zealand is that they have the same scenario we do, which is that you know most people's wealth is tied up in their their their, their household asset, um, mm. and mm. what that therefore does. Because yes, you're right, we haven't seen a material change in in the overall stress of the economy. But it is—it's there. I mean, it is clearly there. And the other thing I'll probably highlight here with with Adrian Orr and what he's done as 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 governor, as hard as he has hiked, he's been that hard cutting in his in his tenure. Um, if you look at the you know the the Kiwi cash rate, it's pretty jagged compared to what has happened here. And yeah. he will he will move the dial to the downside as fast as he moved it to the upside if if need be. The catch for him is that. New Zealand is very linked to global inflation. Um, their economy is very heavily in agriculture, and at the moment, that's you know doing relatively strongly from external issues around the world, things like obviously the Ukraine war. So, inflation is is something that he he's fighting relatively hard, yep. not necessarily coming to the fore yet. We'll see what happens. But you're right; it's it is the test for for what's going on here. Which brings me to the last part of this discussion before we move on to something else, which is Philip Lowe. We are, mm. what are we, 90 days away from the end of his tenure? Everything is suggesting that it is done. Like, politically, it would be very, very hard for the feds to keep him there. I mean, they're all the things they're saying suggest that he's going. I had an interview with uh, Kieran Gilbert uh, for Talking Finance the other day and asked him this exact question. And He said, that, yeah. you know, in Canberra, it's, it's pretty clear. But again, it's the devil you know, the devil you don't. How do you see, you know, the end of Phil Lowe's tenure and, and what comes next with regards to, to the board? Yeah,
0: I think it's been interesting, uh, Evan. I, I, you know, I think you're right. It's been clear for probably two or three, really, since the start of the year that that Lowe's w- contract wouldn't be renewed or extended. I, I I don't know about you, but I've sensed, I've, I've seen him in person last weekend in Sydney at a Morgan Stanley conference and watch the Senate estimates pretty closely, I feel I feel he's a bit
1: unburdened, you know? I, I feel he's he's going out. He's like that coach that knows he's done. And he's just like, right, yeah. let's throw caution yeah. to the wind.
0: Exactly, and he's sort of saying he's not sort of massaging the message. He's saying inflation's sticky. We've got to do something about it. If we don't, then the pain's going to be worse, and I, I think he's been really um, refreshingly blunt about that, uh, with no no concern about any sort of political ramifications, so, and that's what he needs to be. I mean, he's he's right. J- just as as in New Zealand, inflation still stuck at six point eight percent. It's still too high here. It's still near seven percent here, even after the fastest tightening cycle in generations or, or in history. So. Uh, this is, you know, I think we've seen a, yeah, an unencumbered Phil low. What comes next? I'm not sure. I mean, the next central banker, the next head of the RBA is going to have to continue a similar message, aren't they? I mean, there's no way around it. Inflation is too high.
1: Yeah, so that's the question. And I'm glad you raised that because the other question that comes out of this is who, right? Who is the person to replace him? He or yeah. she... The history shows that, you know, the, the governor will come from the bank. So if that's the case, you'd have to argue that Michelle Bullock is, you know, absolutely part and parcel the the, the front runner. Yeah. But again, we've just had the review. The review is going to come into, a, you know, effect sometime in the next three years. You have got a growing push for someone external to shake up the culture of the bank as well and, and where it sits. Now, the reason I point that out is that, as you just said, what do they do how do they continue things now they could even continue things harder than what we're talking about i mean if you listen to some mm. of the you know really strong academic world they're suggesting they're not and haven't done enough and, and need to actually really hit the brake not not just with the foot but actually pull the handbrake up as well <laughs> to, to sort of to get there so this is this is why i asked this is such a fascinating question is that's the devil you know and the devil you don't and, and and again if you were to look around the academic world you were to look around the the central banking world for candidates we are we are you know we are behind in terms of you know where rates are at we 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 are screaming blue murder about rates being at 4.1% for good reason and i absolutely am feeling that as well from a a personal perspective but we are low compared to our global peers and bringing in a global peer could could actually bring in that global thinking. So yeah, yeah. that that's that's why I think at the moment there's this very f- fascinating conundrum that Treasurer Chalmers is facing is that having an additional three years for, for Lowe would put him bang in line if he was extended to be when the next federal election is. Now I'm not saying it's a federal election issue, but again they can hang a lot of the problems that are going right now on him if he's gone and the new person comes in and does what they're hoping, which is that they will start releasing rates right sometime in the future, which is a clear argument to make because it's going to happen. But it doesn't mean in the next six to 12 months that they don't go the other way and actually mm-hmm. get higher before they release. So yeah, watch yeah. this space.
0: Good, uh, good point.
1: Right, let's move on because I need to get on to what we also talk about in, the, in this, and, and I'm, you know, hoping to make sure that Alan is happy with what I'm doing here. Need to move on to stocks. Who would have thought the robot that is CSL is human and it actually can bleed? What what a downgrade. And it's just fascinating to see this company that for pretty much, and I went through this, the last 12 years has upgraded almost every single year or remained flat. It's the first downgrade or significant downgrade that I can remember in a long, long time from the guys coming out of Parkville.
0: Yeah, yeah. And look, there's nothing wrong with CSLs. Underlying business oh, demand's definitely. still pretty good. Um, their R and D pipeline's good. They're doing everything that you've come to expect from a company that proudly sort of thinks ten to twenty years ahead. So, you know. Nothing wrong with CSL. Let, let's, let's make that clear. What, what they've got here is a, a, an issue, I guess, a bit of a COVID hangover. When um, they need to collect a lot of plasma from uh, humans, particularly in America and, uh, and and a lot of particularly down on the border of America and Mexico, that was badly disrupted during COVID. To get the plasma collection going again in a US economy full of stimulus checks, they had to increase their donor fees. Essentially, those donor fees have stayed high and inflation in the US has pushed up all their other costs, labour and handling and all that sort of thing. And so the margin on, on plasma, which to 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 be clear, is still above fifty percent. Pretty it's incredible, heavy. isn't
1: it? It's very very incredible business. <laughs>
0: but but it's not getting back to the fifty seven percent that it was uh, pre COVID. But CSL say it'll get there in three to five years. They seem pretty nonplussed about it. But this is a stock that has everyone's piled into as a sort of super defensive, um, particularly over the last 12 months and as such as you said any downgrade and these are rare as hen's teeth for CSL um, was met with uh, some pretty strong selling. I think the stock was off 7% on yep. Wednesday um, raising most of its year-to-date gains. So look you know th- there's downgrades all over the economy at the moment. Uh, Thursday morning we saw some from Um, retail food group not surprising we saw it from domino's pizza early in the week we've seen the likes of adairs and universal store and baby bunting with some pretty major downgrades you know we we saw some awful uh uh, figures reported out of david jones in australia i mean you know declines in some stores of 40 percent since the last rate hike so you know, just like shock and awe in New Zealand's uh, getting the job done, I guess, Phil, those rate rises are starting to really resonate with people too.
1: Yeah, and I would agree with that. And I think that needs to be pointed out very clearly is that I keep calling discretionary stock sectors the canary in the coal mine, and it's coming. Like it's coming yeah. like a freight train. So you see that as well, and you highlighted all the, you know, Temple and Webster. The ones to now really watch are what JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman do. Um, yeah. They, they are, you know, they... They are always the last to move, and they're the ones that I think are about to tell you that they too are, are under pressure. We saw that in their first half reporting; they were seeing a in January they were seeing a seven to ten percent decline um, year on year, and that didn't include what's happened with two additional rate rises that we saw in March and May. So,
0: Evan, I'd also point out, Coles and Woolies, you know, they're not discretionary retail; they're consumer staple, and that, yeah. that's generally safer. But they have had a period. Really, for three years during the pandemic of strong demand um, and very little discounting. So, do we see their margins under a bit of pressure as we see more promotions and discounting? People shopping down, trading, 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 shopping around and trading down over the next little while. I think that's possible too. As as while uh, wallets dry
1: up. yeah I, I i more than think it's true i think that's happening and i think that's the you know the horrible horrible thing that we're discussing with this stock thing and we just did it with central banks is that the issue with inflation is the impact it has on your purchasing power and yeah. therefore the impact it has on your choice you're no longer making a choice about what discretionary item you're going to buy you're actually having to make physical choices on the staples in the supermarket that is why it is so corrosive and such a horrible horrible thing and the medicine to fix it is so incredibly bitter is the way i describe it and that that is why this period now there is nothing i there is nothing here that i can say that will make it feel better but it will end it will end sometime in the future i don't know when it will happen probably in the next 24 months but I completely understand that. And before – what I want to do, I want to move on to questions because we're running out of time already, James. You and I yes. can talk forever. But just want to address a few things that clearly I've, I've triggered some people from last week's our episode. And I do want to apologize for that around sort of the tax. And there was a couple of people that sort of came into it about it. Just want to combine them all together about sure. the stage three tax cuts. And I also want to point this out very clearly. I am not – a right-wing thinker the reason i believe stage three should happen is because it combined with the first second and third stage it starts taking pressure away from working australians which over the next two decades will be smaller than those that are retired so there has to come pressure off personal income tax the feds cannot continue to rely on personal income tax at it i understand some of you sort of took offense to how i said with regards to bans of you know certain groups of people and they're working. What I was trying to highlight there is that across the board, the upper end of those people are there. I understand there are going to be people underneath that band and I wasn't trying to have a crack at you for any shape or form of that. But when you look and take one, two and three together, those between 55,000 and 150,000 are much, much better off because they don't have bracket creep and and removing Mm. that. So I do apologise if I said something wrong and I do apologise if you sort of took offence. It's, in my view, none of it's the correct thing. I actually think it should move to a progressive indexation, taxation system. I've said that many, many times before. It's a much more progressive way than doing these stage three, one, two, and and three, but just want to clarify that. So just, there was a couple of questions there, um, James, that you missed because I was obviously doing this Stephen last week, but that's there. So let's move on. And I want to give it to you because you're all over this, is that this is from Tim, the media in the last week has been about commercial property valuations and then finally coming off in June, we've obviously seen, you know, a major super fund closing it down. I could be wrong, but I had an understanding that commercial valuers are not legally able to write down property values without comparable transactions. If that is true then, and the headlines are also true. Should we have already seen lots of reports of actual lower sales? Is that the case or have I been misled?
0: No, Tim, you have not been misled. There just hasn't been a lot of actual sales of note. We finally got one last uh, Friday, Uh, 44 Market Street, an office building in Sydney was sold by Dexas. Uh, They got just under $400 million bucks, But the interesting thing was that it was sold at a 22% discount to one year ago. So this has been taken as finally a bit of a proof point for, for valuers and for property um, landlords to work with. Um, but now I've got a bit of breaking news here. We've just seen Charter Hall come out, Evan, with their latest numbers on valuations and they have pushed their valuations for their office fund down by about 3.7%. So this is the question. Is there a bit of a lagged effect? And to Tim's point, have we not seen enough transactions that give us a sense of what's actually happening here? I think this is one we're going to have to watch, not just over the next few months, but probably over the next six months.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. And I think, as I said, the fact that you saw – a big super fund closing down their their property infrastructure fund this week shows that there, there is now valuations that are being questioned um, and, yeah. and how they sit there. Uh, the other thing about super funds that are quite interesting is that, as James just alluded to, and with Dexes, they are also quite high in holding these kinds of assets um, you know, through actually building them. Um, CBUS is a great example. And then obviously leasing the product that they build, yeah. what the valuation sits. Um, and, and that's... That's what's always – you're right, Tim, to point this out. It's it's always, you know, this sort of valuation is slightly subjective in terms of where it sits. Going to keep moving on because, again, we're, we're running out of time and I'm going to be a little sure. bit sort of selective here on you, James. Um, it's okay. I Because I, I do want to get to a couple of things that, that sort of are quite interesting. Um, there's been a lot of talk uh, and this, this – where did it go? Apologies, I've just lost it. Um, there's been a lot of talk over the last sort of – period of time around what's going on with super allocations. Um, yep. And this one's from Julian. I'm going to sort of cut it up a little bit. Um, he's got a query about super fund allocations in cash um, and about the fact that, you know, most super funds have cash running at between 1% and 2% cash returns. But clearly, we now have scenarios where cash has moved up to 4 and, to four to 5%. What do you think the super funds are going to do over this current period where cash is actually now becoming a much more interesting scenario? That was from Julian. I've I've cut up his questions a bit for you, but he's clearly asking the question, when does the super fund allocation to cash start to switch considering the environment we're in?
0: Yeah, I I think um, we will see uh, probably a a bit of an increase in, in, in allocations to cash in super funds and in the balance funds. Um, because those returns, as Julian quite rightly points out, have moved up from 1.2%. The, the, the super funds will be getting much better than that over the next little while. Um, and, and so I think we probably will see a bit of an increase in allocations to cash. I mean, the, the saying here, Evan, is that you're being paid to wait and, and see what happens. And the super funds will be... Um, that's what I imagine that's what they'll be doing with a tilt back to cash, although... It, you know, I'm not sure it'll be a huge tilt, but it'll, it will it will be a tilt back to cash and probably fixed interest as well.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. And I, I, again, all super funds are always reviewing their allocation. They're always moving towards it. And again, it also depends on where you sit on the risk curve. I mean, if you stole your super fund that you're an assertive or a high growth growth investor, you you're you're clearly not going to get exposure to that anyway but they are always reviewing it and again they will be looking at it from the point of view of what is in the best interest of members um, and and that needs to be how they look at it. Again, I'm conscious of time so I want to keep moving because we're running out. I want to get to Sam. Alan talked about an independent board for fiscal policy a few weeks ago. What are your thoughts about establishing a fiscal policy independent slash panel separate from the government and the Reserve Bank during economic slowdowns they were able to raise spending and lower taxes and vice versa um, to get the economy into line. Give the board the keys to manipulating GST, core spending levels, corporate taxes, et cetera, et cetera. The government is and has been hopeless. We need economic core reform. Ooh, that's a broad question, Sam. I'm going to let you go, <laughs> first. I'm going to let you go first, James, before I <laughs> do I,
0: I get Sam's theory, uh, but my question would be, would any of these people who have the power over taxes and spending be, say, elected?
1: Yeah, so that's the question, is it? I mean, and what I want before I let you keep going, just for those out there, the Sam's question was fiscal policy, so that's government policy, not monetary policy, which is the board. So they are different um, and and need to be separated.
0: But but if you had the power over uh, raising spending and lowering taxes or doing the opposite, um, depending on economic conditions, that gets you into the monetary policy area. So I, I, I don't think we we have elected. Um, representatives for a reason and an independent RBA board for a reason. You know, this hasn't been working too badly over the last 40 years, okay? You know, we, we're having a rough rough couple of three years, but is monetary policy or fiscal policy really, you know, working poorly at the moment? It, it, it's challenged because of a period out of the pandemic, but I don't think we need to blow up the whole structure here just because, You know, we're we're, we're having our first real major economic slowdown in 30 years. We've had a pretty good run at it.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. And fiscal policy should be controlled by the government that you and I can elect and all of those listing that you and I can vote for. Um, Because again, as Sam pointed out, they do have the keys to changing taxation and they do have the keys to changing spending. and, And therefore, although, adverted commas, an independent board sounds reasonable they 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 they're not necessarily elected officials or they could be officials that that have certain sways in certain directions that you then can't necessarily move. Now I know I'm saying this with an argument that it could be put at monetary policy why is the board why is the RBA that they monetary policy is different that is supporting the underlying governance and you know monetary supply in this country. Fiscal mm. policy is around the taxation and the services that we require. So it's a bit different in terms of that's why I would back what James has said we need to have them voted in and out, and they have. I actually think right now what excites me about the current government, although <laughs> Chalmers for me, I think I, I really like him. I think he's he's going to be an excellent, excellent treasurer. Why I'm so happy that Labor's in there right now. Then and Sam's question was around GST. I've got this theory, and you can argue with me right or wrong, right in questions by all means. No Labor government is going to touch GST because they hate the policy. No liberal government is going to touch super because they hate the policy. Despite the fact that I would argue both of them are really good, particularly super. Super is a fantastic thing. It's ability to actually take pressure off the pension system. I think unfortunately has been forgotten because it's, you know, it's it's that's a discussion for another day. But why I say that is that I think Labour has the ability to get sort of into somewhat of Sam's question to actually go back to policies that happened in the early 2000s before it was changed by the Howard government, which shouldn't have happened, around how super is taxed because we've already discussed before, about my sort of apology sort of to what I said around personal income tax, super has to be part of this because if we've got an ageing population – that aren't really paying much tax that have a super scenario that is very advantageous to them there has to be something that goes into it clearly it's not going to be as high as your personal income tax that's not going to be the case but back in you know the early 2000s you know earnings were 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 done on a progressive tax system uh, and a progressive number that if you are earning a certain amount you were taxed at 10%, 15, 20 and 25% and that I think is where reform happens sam mm-hmm. it goes away from an independent board you have government that has the ability to take steps needed to reform tax, reform spending, et cetera, et cetera. We've probably got 90 seconds to go with one question, James. Let's, I- do,
0: let's do Stephos's question uh
1: Good idea. After learning about Apple's further steps into banking as well as AI, I want to invest in the company. Can you discuss if how this can be done from Australia? Are there any big tech ETFs that you're aware of that are able to do and what are your thoughts?
0: Well, yes, you can buy Apple directly from Australia. Most brokers, uh, given the size of this company, most brokers um, that have uh, international facilities or, or the, the ability to buy international stocks will have Apple on their list. And and yes, to, to Stephon's point, there's lots of tech ETFs, um, ETFs for the NASDAQ or uh, AI-specific ETFs um, that are uh, able to get you a slice of Apple and other companies. The, this is a really interesting area to me at the moment, Evan. The, the share price of Apple's hit a record high and a couple of times this week. We've seen incredible rise of the AI chip maker Nvidia. Um, Tesla's up for fourteen straight sessions. I think it's up like forty plus percent in essentially two weeks. Um, geez, there's some frothy moves in some of this tech stuff. Uh, that'd be my only. That'd be my only word of caution, Steffis.
1: Yeah, and I would agree. I look, AI is here. I mean, again, the tech heads that are much better at this than me. You know, some of them have some really know, freaky things to discuss about with regards to what they think AI could do. Some of them think that they could actually, you know, AI could could help us make that that leap to things that we haven't been able to do. Um, so, again, looking at talking finance, Steve Sammartino had some really interesting points on that. Some of them think that AI, in the you know, has a 50% chance of actually wiping out the human race and then some of them actually talk about the fact that, you know, AI could actually be the the link that we need to, to, to sort of fix climate change um, and, and things like that. So... Yeah, I agree with you, though. It, it is frothy. It feels very much like they know that this is the next race, space race, tech race, whatever you want to call it, um, mm. but it's probably got ahead of itself, and and just to always have that in the back of your head. But we, unfortunately, James, have run out of time. So thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you for putting up with me for the last two weeks. This has been a fantastic thing to let me do the Money Café. Alan and Stephen will join you next week and then James will be back the week after. So as always, please send in your questions to Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Just a reminder, please keep those questions short and sharp. There were a lot of questions today we didn't get to and a lot of them are quite long. We just don't have time to read them all out. So please, if you've got a question, just send it in as short and sharp as you can because it's more likely that we'll get to it than we can't. Until then, I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy and Investment.
0: And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review.
1: And we will talk to you soon. Have a great week.